One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 72, Controlled, Isolated, and Miserable. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so in the last episode, we followed the sometimes torturous story of Catherine's betrothal and marriage to the heir to the Russian throne, Peter Fyodorovich. We then put the war of the Austrian succession to bed, and finally, I introduced you to the Shuvalovs, and we'll be hearing more from them in the episodes to come. This week we'll be looking at how Peter, Catherine and Elizabeth were all getting along through the events and outcomes related to yet another series of court intrigues and incidents, which were either driven by Elizabeth and Bastuzhev's separate needs and strategies aimed at controlling the newlyweds, or by the behaviours of Peter, and to a lesser extent, Catherine. We'll then cover the European diplomatic and political scene in the aftermath of the recent war. You see, I didn't even mention its name. And then finally, we'll be waving goodbye or saying Auf Wiedersehen to a couple of characters from the supporting cast. And wading through that little lot means that we'll end up somewhere in the year 1748. Just before we get going though, I need to tell you that this podcast is supported by the kind and generous members of the Boyar Duma. And if you want to join them to get members-only episodes, and I've just started off a multi-part series on Rasputin, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content and written transcripts for the price of around a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to the Boyar Duma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, check the episode notes for details and the links. Okay, without any further ado, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. It's autumn 1745 and Catherine is taking stock. 
her husband, Peter, the Russian crown prince, who had the mind and body of a 14-year-old and who had recently been through a serious bout of smallpox, was still sulking and was showing no real interest in properly getting to know his wife or mapping out their future together. And so Catherine found herself wondering whether everything was going to work out, and if so, how. She'd also just waved goodbye to her mother, which, on the one hand, had removed an element of stress from her life, but on the other, had left her feeling vulnerable and alone. And then, of course, there was her relationship with the Empress to consider. In terms of her marriage, Catherine realised that she could only do so much, and so she had decided that, for the time being, she was going to take a break from the stresses and strains of life and give herself a bit of breathing space by spending a little more time in the company of her ladies-in-waiting and a little less time in the company of Elizabeth and Peter. Yes, the more she thought about it, the more she liked the idea. The only thing that she would need to be watchful of was upsetting the Empress and falling foul of her volatile nature. Still, with a bit of luck and a fair wind, Catherine was sure that if she was careful, better times were just around the corner. She couldn't have been more wrong. The first sign that something wasn't quite right occurred on one particular day in mid-October, when Catherine couldn't find her favourite lady-in-waiting, the 17-year-old Maria Zhukova. She was told that Maria had gone to visit her mother, and she received the same answer when she asked again the next day. A couple of days later, Catherine plucked up the courage to ask Elizabeth, over lunch, what had happened, and she received the following answer. Ah, yes, before she left, your mother told me that she was worried that you were getting too close to the girl, and she asked me to move her on, and that is what I've done. Don't worry, it's for the best, and you won't be seeing her again. Catherine was stunned. First of all, she was embarrassed as Elizabeth's response had been witnessed by a large group of people. And secondly, she just couldn't believe that her mother, Johanna, would have done such a thing without speaking to her daughter directly on the matter. And indeed, the more she thought about it, the more she realised that this had to have been Elizabeth's decision. But why? Well, we'll come to all of that a little bit later on. Catherine talked to Peter, but he showed no inclination to get involved, and so she then tried to send a message and some money to Maria, but she was told that the family had left St Petersburg. Then Peter's antics came to the fore. During the spring of 1746, he'd set up a puppet theatre, and one day, while he was playing with his puppets, no, I'm not making this up, he heard muffled voices coming from the other side of the wall. And so he then did what any normal 18-year-old crown prince would do and quietly drilled a few small holes and took a look through, whereupon he discovered the Empress and her entourage at a private dinner party. OK, so no damage had been done. Peter blocked up the holes and returned to his puppets. Except that's what he didn't do. Instead, he gathered his servants and Catherine's ladies-in-waiting around the peepholes and got them all in turn to peer through. 
The only person who didn't join in the fun was Catherine. A few days later, they were both summoned by the Empress, and Peter, but not Catherine, was subjected to a half-hour tirade by Elizabeth, during which she told him exactly what she thought of his stupid games and exactly what she thought of him in general, and that if he didn't buck his ideas up, she'd have him stripped of his titles and locked up in a fortress somewhere. Again, Catherine was shocked. Not so much with what Elizabeth had said, but more with the profane and coarse language that she had used. And she was also worried about her own future. What would happen to her if Elizabeth ever carried out her threat? Peter, however, didn't seem to be at all impacted by his aunt's admonishment. Later in the same year, a potentially much more serious set of events took place, this time involving Catherine and a couple of Peter's closest friends. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, but apparently he did actually have some close friends. So for the second episode running, there were two brothers and a cousin, this time all with the surname Chernyshev, who were part of Peter's entourage. The eldest brother, Zakhar, had at some point become a little bit infatuated with Catherine, and he had told his mother all about his feelings. Now, Mrs Chernyshev knew that this couldn't be allowed to continue, and she apparently pleaded with Elizabeth to post her son far away from St Petersburg, and the Empress duly obliged, but she also made a mental note. Roll forward to 1746, and we find that another of the Chernyshevs, cousin Andre, is in a similar situation. Now, Andre's relationship with Catherine had always featured some light-hearted, playful flirtatiousness, which Peter seemed to tolerate, and indeed, at times, encouraged. However, the servants gossiped, and one thing led to another, and it wasn't long before both remaining Chernyshevs had been removed from court and placed under house arrest. At Elizabeth's behest, Catherine then received a visit from Father Todorsky, who, if you remember, had provided the initial assistance for Catherine's conversion to orthodoxy. And he asked her point-blank if the rumours were true. Had they kissed? Don't worry, listeners, there is a point to all of this froth and nonsense. We've almost finished the Mills and Boone section. Catherine swore blind that nothing of the kind had ever happened, and implored Todorsky to make sure that Elizabeth took her version of events over anyone else's. And for the time being, that's what Elizabeth decided to do. And things calmed down and returned to normal. But what at this stage was normal? Well, it would appear that even though Peter was now 18 and Catherine 17, not a lot was going on in the marital bed. Well, that's not quite true. The couple did share the same bed, but Peter treated it all as an extension to his playroom, and, if Catherine's diaries are to be believed, brought his toys to bed with him. And frightened of rocking the boat, Catherine had reluctantly decided to go along with her husband's behaviour, and so had her, had her governess, a certain Madame Krauser, who most of the time, and again, according to Catherine, was too drunk to either notice or care. Hearing the latest rumours that were emanating from the young royal's apartments, Elizabeth again consulted with Lestock, 
and this time Bestuzhev. And she asked them point blank, was Peter now ready to fulfil his duty, and if not, why not? Lestock started to mumble a reply, but Bestuzhev, who sensed an opportunity to take the lead and drive the agenda, interrupted the doctor. Leave everything to me, Your Majesty. I will investigate fully and come up with a solution, or words to that effect. And over the next few weeks, he did investigate fully, and he then decided that whilst Peter's immaturity was still an issue, Catherine's behaviour over the past couple of years had also left a lot to be desired. He reported his findings to Elizabeth, and she agreed with him. The young couple needed to be set a firm example. Madame Krauser was a poor influence, and so the Empress decided to put someone else in overall charge of the married couple's household, and that someone else was her 24-year-old cousin and Bestuzhev loyalist, Maria Semenyovna Choglokova. If Catherine had thought that the last 18 months had been tempestuous, she was in for a surprise, because the next few years would test her patience to the core and bring her nothing but misery. And at that point, I think we'll take a well-earned breather. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we're back. Elizabeth and Bestuzhev's rationale for tighter control was simple. If Peter and Catherine carried on as they were and no child was produced, then Peter would in effect be the last Romanov. And the longer that situation went on, the danger to Russia would only increase. Russian nobles and foreign powers would start to sense weakness and start potentially jostling for position, and their focus could be the now seven-year-old former Tsar Ivan VI, who was still incarcerated up in Kolmogory, but still very much alive. For dynastic and personal reasons, Elizabeth was determined that none of this would ever happen. However, she'd promised everyone at the beginning of her reign that no one, and this included the young Ivan, would be executed on her watch. And so she needed to do all that she could to get Peter and Catherine to pull their fingers out. 
Bestuzhev's concerns were the same, but were focused more upon the risks to the Russian state. And even though he'd never been a fan of the marriage and didn't trust either Peter or Catherine, he was equally determined that the young couple should snap to it and do their duty. Madame Choglokova was chosen not only because she was loyal and that both Elizabeth and Bestuzhev liked her, but because she was seen as having the right stuff. She was a tough, no-nonsense individual who, and here's the rub, since her marriage in 1742, had already had three children and would eventually go on to have five more. She would lead by example, show the young couple what was what, keep them on a tight rein and ensure that any outside influences were kept to the absolute minimum. And she established those parameters right from the word go when she informed Catherine that any communication between Catherine and Elizabeth must go via Choglokova. The direct relationship between Grand Duchess and Empress was over. Strange then, almost immediately after this, Catherine was involved in a confrontation with the Empress alone, who told her in no uncertain terms that none of this was her fault, Elizabeth's that is, and that the current situation regarding her marriage could all be laid at her door and not Peter's. When Catherine protested and then started to cry, Elizabeth effectively told her to shut up and get a grip. As mentioned in the last episode, in March 1747, Catherine's father, Christian Augustus, died at the age of 56. Catherine was heartbroken. She hadn't seen her father for three years, and due to the anti-Prussian sentiment prevailing in St. Petersburg, she'd been unable to send any personal correspondence for several months. To make things worse, Choglokova then callously informed the deeply upset Catherine that as her father hadn't been a king, then any period of official mourning must be limited to a week. Oh, and she also told her that, by the way, her husband Nikolai had just been promoted to become Peter's governor. Throughout the rest of 1747 and into 1748, Nikolai and Maria Choglokov slowly and patiently took the necessary steps to establish their complete control over the royal couple. Loyal servants who'd been around for years, including Catherine's previous governess, Madame Krauser, were gradually removed, and no one was allowed to visit either Peter or Catherine's private rooms without permission from the Choglokovs. The direct result and design of all of this was that Peter and Catherine were spending increasing amounts of time with each other. However, in terms of the thing that everyone wanted to hear about, Catherine becoming pregnant, there was no progress at all. But outside of the unproductive royal bedchamber, progress had indeed been made. With the war of the Austrian succession effectively over, Bestuzhev was determined that Russia was going to be a key player in any required reshaping of Europe's political and diplomatic landscape. Now I say any required reshaping, it was almost inevitable that the established powers would be looking to gain some kind of post-war advantage, particularly as a number of them, Russia included, wanted at the very least to come up with a way of keeping Frederick the Great of Prussia in check. 
but the problem was how. Back in the autumn stroke fall of 1745, Bestuzhev had ordered a part mobilisation of the Russian army into Livonia. He'd then made an offer to the British that went something along the lines of, you give us a load of money and we'll attack Prussia. Now we don't know if the British took this offer seriously, but in the end they didn't have to, because Prussia and Austria, who was Britain's ally, signed the Treaty of Leipzig, which negated the need for a Russian attack. Undeterred in 1746, Bestuzhev decided to try a different tack, and he managed to persuade Maria Theresa that it was in her best interests to rip up her treaty with Prussia and sign a new one with Russia, and then in 1747 he formed alliances with Denmark and the Ottoman Empire. This was the start of a strategy that would in time, or so he hoped, eventually isolate both Prussia and possibly Frederick's one-time ally and friend, France. However, his deputy chancellor and former friend, Mikhail Vorontsov, was keen not to alienate either France or Prussia, and he kept sticking his oar in. And in fact, he stuck his oar in so much that Elizabeth, who as we know, didn't like to do anything in a rush, started to question Bestuzhev's intentions. But Bestuzhev had a couple of aces up his sleeve. A, he knew how to manage Elizabeth, and B, he knew how to get rid of pesky, interfering opponents like Vorontsov, and anyone else who he thought was standing in his way. And in the spring of 1748, he got the ball rolling. He suspected that Frederick was still plotting against him, and he also suspected that Vorontsov was involved. The trouble was, he couldn't find any concrete evidence. Frustrated with his lack of progress, Bestuzhev came to the conclusion that he was looking in the wrong direction. Perhaps there was someone else at court, someone with a history of plots and subterfuge that he should be looking at more closely. Jean Armand de Lestoc had survived his association with the 1744 plot that had been cooked up by Frederick, Joanna of Brunswick, the Marquis de la Chetardie, and Marderfeld, the Prussian ambassador, and he had remained very much in Elizabeth's favour. In the summer of 1748, he had married one of Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting, with the Empress and the whole court in attendance, but by the autumn stroke fall, his fortunes, like the leaves, had fallen and drifted away in the wind. Bestuzhev had followed his hunch and persuaded the plot-sensitive Elizabeth that it would be best to have Lestoc and Vorontsov investigated more closely. We'll leave Vorontsov to one side. The evidence for what he was accused of and what happened to him during this period is less clear. All we do know is that he suddenly fell out of favour and was dismissed temporarily from his position of Deputy Chancellor. But we do know that Lestock and his new wife were both arrested and taken off to the Schlisselberg fortress to be questioned by Alexander Shuvalov and his secret police thugs. In an ordeal lasting 11 days, Lestock was accused of sending and receiving coded letters to and from Prussia and of accepting bribes from Frederick. But even after several rounds of torture, 
he refused to confess. But this didn't spare him, and eventually he was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. At the eleventh hour, Elizabeth intervened and reduced his sentence to exile for life, leaving Lestock to live out his days, not in Siberia, surprisingly, but in the settlement of Veliki Ustyug, about 500 miles to the northeast of Moscow. So not that it really mattered, but was he guilty? Well, we don't know. Catherine certainly thought not, and years later, when she was the Empress of Russia, she would end his exile and have him brought back to St. Petersburg. For Bestuzhev, the fall of Lestok and Vorontsov removed two of his high-profile opponents and left him in an even more powerful position, and so now he was free to pursue his foreign policy objectives without hindrance. But were Bestuzhev's foreign policy objectives the right ones for Russia? Well, we'll have to wait until the next episode before we find out, because we're almost finished for today. Just before I go, though, there is one other person who we need to say goodbye or Alphavidezen to, and that is Peter's nemesis, the odious, bullying Otto Brumer. If any one single person had been responsible for the way that Peter had turned out, it was him. Back in February 1745, Peter was declared to be of age, which was ironic, and he inherited the title of Duke of Holstein, which allowed him to make certain decisions about the Dutch's affairs. And decision number one was to tell Brumer, with great relish, that his time in Russia had come to an end. Now, this shouldn't have come as any sort of shock to Brumer, but it appears to have done so because he immediately went rushing off to find Catherine and implored her to do anything that she could to reverse her husband's decision. Catherine was reluctant to get involved and told him that even if she went to the Empress, she doubted that Elizabeth would alter the decision. And she was right. Elizabeth didn't. In the end, Brumer managed to string things along for just over a year before he was given his marching orders and in the spring of 1746, he forlornly returned to Holstein, albeit with a nice big pension. Okay, that is it for this episode. Join me next time where we will be taking a further look at the pan-European diplomatic and political scene, and in particular, some developments that clever clogs Bestuzhev hadn't anticipated. Plus, we'll of course be covering the ongoing shenanigans at court, which include a scandal involving the Choglikovs, and we'll also get to meet a certain Sergei Soltikov, who might, just might, have been in the position to provide the solution to everyone's biggest problem. So until then, dear listeners, and of course, dear patrons, chins up, heads down, fight the good fight, and stay as safe as you possibly can.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.